Welcome to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein is a professor at the Department of Philosophy and Religion at the University of North Dakota. Jack, welcome back to Main Street. Always a pleasure for me to visit with you. It's great to be here. And actually, this is a minute detail for other people, but it's super exciting. We are no longer the Department of Philosophy and Religion. We are now the Department of Philosophy and Ethics. We changed our name. I will change that in my notes from here on out, Jack. Thanks for that tip. But it is back to school time, Jack. And I'm curious, you have many students now who have come to the University of North Dakota's campus, some for the very first time. Do you enjoy teaching new students or students with a little more maturity in their academic progress there? They are joys of a different type. And I don't even mean that sarcastically. I know that sounds kind of, you know, trite. But the fact of the matter is the, the older students, the students with more experience, you get to really go into depth and see what they're capable of. You really get to push their boundaries. But the, the newer students, the students who haven't had philosophy before, you get to watch the process of discovery. And that's really exciting. For most of them, they'll never have another true philosophy class or maybe even philosophical experience in their life. And to have the responsibility of ushering that in is it's it's sublime. It's really an incredible experience. Relative to philosophy, Jack, do you find it easier to teach new students these days or a little more difficult? Do you have to do it differently? Is there any less of an interest in philosophy or any more of an interest? Any intro class has a strong element of theater. You have much more obligation to motivate the students to keep their attention, to make it relevant. And of course, philosophy, it's much easier to do that than, say, chemistry Mm -hmm. or some highly technical subject. I don't know the students are radically different. I think many of the students come in not knowing what philosophy is. A lot of the classes are things like intro to ethics or intro to logic. And so they don't really have the sense of what they're prepared for. I don't have the problem at UND that some schools report where students are more sensitive or there's blowback to certain ideas. I think the the greatest barrier to learning is that students are of the impression that I'm teaching my opinion as opposed to 20 different opinions from history. And so one of the things I make clear, especially with the intro-level students, is, look, this is not Jack talking. This is Aristotle talking. This is Kant talking. This is Mill talking. And if I say something that you disagree with or you find bothersome, then the, the question is, why and how do we deal with that? And how do we pay attention to someone that we might not trust at first glance. And so the only change that I think has been, it's been 23 years now at UND, the only change that I've seen is, is this level of trust has, has diminished just a little bit where they think that I'm there to tell them what to think as opposed to I'm there to tell them what lots of people have thought over the years. They want to know what your agenda is. That's right. Well, we do get together once a month, Jack, for Philosophical Currents, and we do have a topic in mind today, and let's, um, let's dig into it. And what made me think of this topic here in North Dakota was the closing of the Nest newspaper chain in northeastern North Dakota. Seven weeklies died a tragic death on August 4th, when after 100 years of publishing, the owners had no offers to buy the newspapers. And to me, that just brings up a lot of questions. I grew up in the newspaper industry in Wyoming. Local rural newspapers have historically served really as a vital means of connecting communities. Our publishers, Bob and Roy Peck, used to say, we are not the most profitable 
business in the community by far, but we are the most important. What sense do you have about these newspaper deserts here in, right here in rural North Dakota? Well, there is a fairly famous phrase that all politics is local. And there is a sense that as much as we want to give credit to the president or our senators, you can affect a lot more change on city council that affects a lot more people directly. The school board is the locus right now of all sorts of battles. And the local newspapers are the people who report that. You're not going to get the New York Times to tell you about the can-do city council or anything like that. So what local newspapers do is bring both a sense of detail and a sense of context because they do understand not only what's going on, but why it's going on and what that history is. There are lay, I used to... <laughs> um, those folks who still read Marilyn Haggerty will, will recognize this, that, that one of the code words, she, she never says anything negative about a restaurant. But one of the code words that she uses is she complains about the napkins. If the napkins are too thin, <laughs> you know that it's a bad restaurant. And you'd have to really be immersed in the local newspaper culture to understand that. We talked a moment ago about agenda and how people, students today, may be a little more leery about what they hear and why they're hearing it. From my perspective, it's, it's a truth and trust of trained journalists versus this social upraising that we hear in Facebook comments, et cetera, that drive people's opinions about a lot of things. One of the great problems of democracy is what I call the problem of expertise. In a democratic society, every voice deserves to be heard and every voice should have some sort of audience. But at the same time, some voices have more experience than others. Some voices have more knowledge than others. And so the problem of expertise is how to balance the fact that there are people who know more and there are people who have uh, more technical knowledge and deeper understanding and you want to give them a different kind of attention than the upstart or the blogger or someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about. You have to balance both. If there's no newspaper, then there's no expertise. If there's no blog, then there's no young Turk, to use a very old <laughs> expression. Uh, there's no person to push the envelope to push that boundary. The other thing that I wonder about, and I think it's especially important here in North Dakota, I think it was important in Wyoming as well, is cultural erosion. I think local newspapers, they're responsible to be almost the local historians to tell us about the culture and heritage of an area. And again now, that's leaving especially our small rural towns. I think you have an analogous problem with culture as you do with knowledge, because just like there's the problem of expertise, there's also, I'll call it the problem of conservatism. And I don't mean mm -hmm. conservative, Republican, that sort of thing. I mean the uh, maintaining the status quo. A lot of people have a lot of investment in the way things are and want things to stay the way things are. The local historians, the local newspapers, they're often very invested in that process. What non-newspapers can do is push boundaries. And what that boundary may mean is, is a new business in town or a new group of people in town or greater ethnic diversity or different attitudes about 
technology or things like that. You don't want things to stay the same, but the changes that you want need to be positive, constructive, and include everybody. And so there again is that balance between that historical, contextual, local culture attitude, then balancing that with let's change for any reason or, or, or let's just have change for change's sake. One of the things that I often talk about is how much easier it is to change things in Fargo than it is to Grand Forks. I often joke that it took us five years to get a dog park in Grand Forks. Grand Forks, there's something about our culture that is slower and more resistant to change. And you see that in the way that the downtown has evolved much slower in Grand Forks than it has in Fargo. And I think that Fargo has really benefited from that kind of forward movement in a way that, frankly, 20 years ago, no one would have expected. So again, there is that loyalty towards a local culture and a loyalty to the local history, but that has to be balanced with the needs of the future and the needs of incoming populations that may want something slightly different than what they moved into. We get together once a month with Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein and have a philosophical currents discussion. We're enjoying our conversation Jack is a professor in the Department of Philosophy and Ethics at the University of North Dakota. Jack, one thing that is always on my mind is this role, this nature of capitalism in newspapers, right? I mean, obviously, newspapers die because they can't make money. There are economic realities centered around whether newspapers can, can survive, so to speak. But should our, I guess, provision of local news be solely determined by profitability – and I know that's, boy, what are you thinking about, socialist stuff here, you know? But, but really, don't we have a right to have good local news coverage? So there are two separate questions because you used really big and important words here. The first was socialism and the second was right. Uh, let's, let's, let's do them backwards for a second. What would it mean to, to have a right to have local news coverage? What that would mean is that there is a moral obligation on the part of the community, on the part of the government, on the part of the state to make sure that that existed. If you have a right to free speech, the government has to make sure that you are able to engage in that right. So to claim that you have a right to, to, to local news could be a much bigger question mm. than you've actually suggested. Now, with that said, I'm not sure it's an unreasonable request. I'm not sure that in a democracy, it's not perfectly legitimate to say, look, there is an obligation for the state to support and for the community to support news, even if it comes at a price tag, which then goes to that notion of socialism, right? How much does the state get involved? Can the state give grants or tax relief or other things to let the newspaper thrive without interference? That's the question we do. Of course, we have development zones in towns. We have tax relief for new businesses. There's no particular reason why the newspapers can't be subject to those same sorts of benefits. And I do think that it is it would be in the interest of any smaller community to have some sort of program to help float the newspapers because losing them is a huge deal. And it changes the nature of the entire conversation in an area. Are communities, smaller communities especially, less desirable to live in because we don't have this sense of connection with a newspaper? I don't know that I can answer that question because a lot of that has to do with pers people's personal desires. What I do know is that the smaller the community, 
on some level, the less you need a newspaper. And what I mean by that is if you have a town of 200, everyone knows what's going on. And everyone is really has their eye on other people. Now, what does a newspaper provide then? A newspaper provides, ideally, a neutral voice that tells the story in a way for people to interpret past their biases, right? So in a small community, people get siloed and people get set in their own ways. And what a newspaper can do is challenge that. So if the question is just information, I don't necessarily know that a newspaper is going to provide all of the things that, that we want. But if the goal is interpretation and to promote a conversation, then a local, local newspaper is really essential. And even for a community of, again, 200 people, mm -hmm. you get this one or two page newspaper that comes out weekly that's a record of events and it's a way for people to communicate with one another without getting wrapped up in their own heads. And I think that that's really the goal of journalism. We have to distinguish between, of course, the news and the opinions section. We have to distinguish between reporting and editorializing. But once we do that, we recognize that news involves both knowledge and judgment. News involves both understanding information and being able to develop opinions and make decisions based on that, on that information. And in that sense, local newspapers can play a significant role. One of the things about the North Dakota newspapers that are so funny is that you will get people complaining that they are radically liberal and you will get people complaining that they're horrendously conservative, right? That, that what a newspaper is, their political opinion uh, is entirely in the eye of the beholder because it's relative to where people are when they pick up the paper. And that's one of the complications as well. You can't control a reader's reaction. All you can control is what you give them. And a newspaper gives us something that we have a record of. It has a history. It's written on paper. Uh, you can always go back three years, 10 years, 15 years and say, look, this happened or you said this. And you don't get that with just the Internet because the Internet can be changed very, very easily or completely erased. My kids read about me in the scrapbooks my mom put together. Their kids will read about them in the scrapbooks my wife put together. And now that connection that you talk, talk about from generation to generation that many of us have, newspaper clippings, right? They're no longer a thing because there aren't any newspapers. I think that's right. And I think that even more exciting, your grandkids are going to read about your grandparents, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that there is a kind of longevity that we're not used to now. The news cycle for uh, CNN or something like that at times appears to be about 10 minutes long. <laughs> um, is it that long sometimes? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, 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 I'm being, I'm being optimistic here. Uh, and we just go from thing to thing and we forget what happened yesterday or two days ago, whereas the, 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 the cycle of print, you know, I, you, you started off by asking me about my teaching. I'm currently teaching texts from the 15th century. I'm currently looking at, at medieval texts, and then I'm going to be looking at 18th century enlightenment texts because these books are solid, they're real, and, 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 and they have a longevity that no other medium has, whether it's movies or recorded music or the radio or anything like that. Newspapers play that role. Newspapers have a solidity and a permanence that 
all of the digital media does not have. Now, that also means they're slower to change. It also means they're more expensive. It also means they're hard to get a hold of. Uh, the thing about a digital version of a newspaper is someone in Timbuktu can read what's going on in Fargo. If they're just print, then it's just a newspaper for that little community. And that may be more limited in a way that prevents us from holding a more cosmopolitan mm -hmm. point of view, which is very important for everybody to have, I think. Talked a moment ago about the difference between news and opinion. And again, let me reflect back to what happened in Riverton, Wyoming. So the newspaper was sold a couple of years ago um, after it had been held by the Peck family for generations. Dozens, if not not a hundred years, but close to it, and so it was purchased by um, an entity, who then and it was clear to everyone. They even kind of said it themselves in their opening editorial: "We are bending to the right in our coverage of everything." And here we go. So we go with this newspaper that now has a political agenda in the community. It's a community's newspaper, and I wondered about that, and so have have talked about that in statewide contexts in Wyoming, some people say, hey, we are conservative. We are very conservative in the red of red estates, right? So this is what we want. So what's wrong with that? Well, there are a couple things that are wrong with that. The first thing is that the job of the media is to prevent an alternative point of view. If your position is only to support what people already believe, then people don't grow and people don't learn and people don't understand. John Stuart Mill, the most famous philosopher of freedom of speech, says that not only do you have to be able to argue why your point is correct, you have to also be able to argue why the other point is wrong. And in order to do that, you have to understand the other point. You have to give them the benefit of the doubt. You can't go around just attacking straw men arguments. You have to take the opponent at their best. And so if a newspaper comes along and says, this community is conservative or this community is liberal, and therefore we're just going to be conservative or we're just going to be liberal, then all that does is fully solidify the, the, the fractures that are in the communities, the difficulties that are in the communities. Think people don't heal, communities don't change. But there's something else that's really important here, which is that neutrality is also a political agenda. It's not the case that if you're on the left or that you're on the right, if you represent that, well, then you're the one with the agenda. Neutrality is incredibly hard. Being, and I don't mean centrist, I mean trying with all of your might to represent all of the positions with a certain kind of authenticity and trust. That is incredibly hard. And that's where that problem of expertise comes in. I don't necessarily we, we tend to think of of journalists as having content expertise, that if you are the if your beat is the local businesses, you know, all the local businesses, if your beat is technology, you're going to understand the factories and, 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 and how they all work in communities. But what a journalist's true expertise is, is the ability to present other people's opinions in a way that the other people will be happy happy with, not present your interpretation of the issue, but rather communicate a wide spectrum of ideas and a wide spectrum of, of presentations so that the readers can imagine a conversation with everyone involved. Now, that may mean using certain terms, recognizing that people are regarded innocent before they're guilty in a court of law or finding a way to communicate that doesn't imply certain things. Jack, you mentioned schools just started. Do you think any of your students this summer 
picked up a real newspaper? Oh, I don't know. Probably not. And uh, what do you think about that? Or do you? There are so many things that my students need to do to grab the world around them. There is a museum of art on the University of North Dakota campus, and most students will graduate never having stepped in it once. I think the same is true of the local newspapers or even the student newspaper. You have to pick it up because you have to engage with the world that's larger than what's right in front of you. Now, is is life better or worse because they only look at digital news? I don't have the answer to that. What I do know is they're less of a citizen. And if you want to be in North Dakota, you should read the North Dakota newspaper. If you want to vote in North Dakota, you need to do that. And that's true everywhere. So I think what I want from my students is for them to be able to read, you know, those 14th century, 15th century texts that I'm talking about, but also today's texts. And if they can get that in a newspaper, that's great. If they can get that in a digital format, that's great. But they have to get it from the local perspective so that they know where they are and they know what they're doing there. I have this worry about my kids and now my, my grandkids is how do they balance the importance of global awareness with the need for local grounding and context and the rest of that sentence is if you don't read the dang newspaper. <laughs> well, see, this is this is actually, I think, where, where you and I may have some differing opinions because one of my great frustrations with local newspapers is that they don't cover the global issues. And so I would really love to see a paper that was twice the size, that covered the community events, but also covered international events because that would show better than anything that we live in a unified world. Right now we have the local newspaper for local uh, points of view, and then we have the national newspapers, whether it's New York Times or USA Today, for international point of view. I want to see it in the same place. I want an article about a local business opening up on the same page as an article about uh, the coup in Niger. Why? Because that communicates better than anything that we live in an interlocking world and there is a direct connection between the politics of some country on the other side of the world and the politics of where we are, the opportunities that other people have and the opportunities that we have. If, uh, pardon me for using a phrase like the butterfly effect, but if a new business opens up on our main street, it will in some sense have a long-standing effect that will impact people on the other side of the world. We have to map that out. And so what I would love to see are larger, more robust, more vibrant local newspapers that take on the responsibility of national and global news as well. I'm a fairly nostalgic guy for those who know me. And I just remember my first days at the University of Wyoming, walking into my dorm. And here we are with this row of tables. Subscribe to the Laramie, Laramie Boomerang, the local newspaper for like 10 bucks. Right next to it, We'll have the New York Times in your mailbox every morning, 10 bucks, or the Denver Post or the Rocky Mountain News. And so, God, we, we all did that. At least it seemed like we did. I'm not sure that's a blast from the past that no one's ever thought about. All right, Jack, let's talk about your future. You've got a Y show coming up. I think it's set to air September 10th. Who's going to be your guest? <laughs> well, our guest is a guy named Dan Savage, who is 
probably the most prominent uh, relationship, love, and sex advice columnist in the world. Now, that seems like a pretty far-fetched topic for Why Radio, but it goes to the heart of my belief, which is that everything can be talked about philosophically, that if you take a responsible, disciplined attitude about knowledge, you can take anything and make it philosophically interesting. And so that's what we're going to try to do with this somewhat risque topic, but we're going to hopefully do it in a very responsible way that's going to bring out a lot of these cultural questions. And this actually brings it back to newspapers, because if you have a very specific culture, then someone comes and tries something like, hey, let's talk about sex on public radio. People are going to be resistant to that. And I would like to see any newspaper, any radio, any television station push the boundaries in responsible ways. And I hope that Dan and I will be able to do that uh, next week. Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein is beginning his school year and is a professor in the Department of Philosophy and Ethics at the University of North Dakota. Jack, this philosophical currents discussion was good for me. Thank you so much for joining us on Main Street. Thank you, Craig. It's always a pleasure.